0: This is the closest you can get to that experience. So sit back, tune in, and enjoy the Beatles' multi-track meltdown. I'll make you maybe next time around. There's been quite a bit of hype about the 50th anniversary of the release of the Beatles' Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. But that wasn't the only important project the group worked on in 1967. While the Magical Mystery Tour film was initially panned by critics and fans alike... The music created for the film, as well as the other tracks from 67 that filled out the original American LP release, stands alongside Pepper as a companion to the much-lauded album and a snapshot of the Beatles' psychedelic leanings that year. The driving force behind the film was McCartney, who had for all intents and purposes become the de facto leader of the group. His idea was to make an unscripted film that followed the band, along with a variety of ordinary people, on a bus trip and film the experience as it unfolded capturing what he hoped would be magical adventures. Magical Mystery Tour originally aired on BBC One on Boxing Day, December 26, 1967, and was initially shown in black and white. Fans were confused and critics couldn't wait to attack the band that had been at the top of the charts for nearly five years. Although it was shown in color on BBC Two a few days later, there were only about 200,000 color TV receivers in the UK at the time, so few people got to see it as the Beatles had intended. When speaking to the press shortly after its airing, McCartney stated, We don't say it was a good film. It was our first attempt. If we goofed, then we goofed. It was a challenge, and it didn't come off. We'll know better next time. He added somewhat facetiously, I mean, you couldn't call the Queen's speech a gas either, could you? However, looking back on the project today, his opinion has changed, claiming that director Steven Spielberg was a fan of the film while in film school. But it seems like an exaggeration, because number one, Spielberg was 21 when Magical Mystery Tour was shown in England, And two, he never graduated from college, dropping out to direct films for Universal. Also, since it had performed so poorly when broadcast in the U.K., American television networks decided not to acquire the rights. Since it was only an hour long, movie theaters also passed at the time, so it was not seen in commercial theaters until 1974. It was, however, shown in 1968 at the Fillmore East in New York City on Sunday, August 11th, as part of a fundraiser for the Liberation News Service. The Monty Python team had considered showing the film as a prelude to their 1975 film Monty Python and the Holy Grail and had gotten permission from all four Beatles to view the film, which they did at Apple offices on January 10, 1975. Although all parties were interested, the pairing never saw fruition. The packaging of the six songs from the film posed a problem for Parlophone because the collection didn't quite fill an LP, but was too long for an EP. One idea considered was to issue an EP which played at 33 and a third RPM, but the loss of audio fidelity that would have resulted was unacceptable, so the idea was scrapped. The solution was to issue an innovative format of two EPs packaged in a gatefold sleeve with a 28-page booklet containing the lyrics, photos from film production, and story illustrations by Beatles book cartoonist Bob Gibson. It was released in the UK on December 8, 1967, and stayed in the number one spot for eight weeks at the start of 68. EPs never caught on in the US, so Capitol Records came up with an ingenious idea for the US release, something that didn't happen often when repackaging the Beatles product in the 60s. By adding five songs that had been released as singles earlier that year, they were able to produce a full 11-song album that was released on November 27, 1967, with the booklet from the double EP release, but in a larger format. Despite widespread media criticism of the Magical Mystery Tour film, the soundtrack was a critical and commercial success and a number one Grammy-nominated album in the U.S. and was a popular import in the U.K. until its eventual release in 1976. It is the only American release of a Beatles album that has become a part of their standardized catalog since its initial release on CD in 1987. Tonight we're going to hear a remix of the entire album, starting with the title track. On April 25th, 1967, less than a week after the final sessions for Pepper were complete, the band began recording Magical Mystery Tour. Although the song wasn't complete when the session began, after many rehearsals, the basic rhythm track was complete. As was common practice in 1967, bass guitar was overdubbed the next day and vocals on both the 26th and the 27th of April. A week later, the brass fanfare and other parts were added, during a somewhat disorganized session. It was typical for George Martin to prepare a score before session musicians were called in, but in this case, the session began without one. Eventually, trumpet player Elgar Howarth took matters into his own hands and wrote a score out for the players. The final mix also featured the sound of the Bedford VAL-14 Plaxton coach rented by the Beatles for the film screeching its tires. The driver was none other than Ringo Starr himself, who drove the coach during the race sequence in the film. We'll follow with McCartney's Fool on the Hill. He recorded a solo demo version of the song on September 6, 1967, but recording for the album version didn't begin until nearly three weeks later on September 25th. Significant overdubs by the Beatles were recorded the next day and vocals were added on the 27th before the song sat for nearly a month before flutes were added on the 20th of October. Ray Thomas of the Moody Blues stated in a 2015 interview that he came up with the idea for the harmonica part and that he and bandmate Mike Pinder played them alongside Lennon and Harrison. We'll then hear the second instrumental written by the Beatles but the first released, since 12-bar original recorded during the Rubber Soul sessions of 65, was left in the can until Anthology 2 in 1996. Flying was the first song to be credited as a Harrison, Lennon, McCartney, Starkey composition. Originally titled Aerial Tour Instrumental, it was recorded on September 8, 1967, with Mellotron, guitar, bass, maracas, drums, and tape loop overdubs taking place on September 28th. Tonight we're going to hear an extended version of the song that includes more tape loops compiled by Lennon and Starr and the original New Orleans-Dixieland-influenced ending played on the Mellotron.
1: mystery tour he knows what to expect we guarantee him the trip of a lifetime and that's just what he gets the incredible magic mystery tool.
0: Next up, Harrison's sole contribution to Magical Mystery Tour, Blue Jay Way. The song, which was named after a street in the Hollywood Hills section of Los Angeles, where Harrison stayed in August 1967, was written on an organ in the house while he was waiting for publicist Derek Taylor, who was having trouble finding his way to the house through the fog-ridden hills. Harrison elaborated in a 1968 interview. Derek Taylor got held up. He rang to say he'd be late. I told him on the phone that the house was in Blue Jay Way, and he said he could find it okay. He could always ask a cop, so I waited and waited. I felt really knackered with the flight, but didn't want to go to sleep until he came. There was a fog and it got later and later. To keep myself awake, just as a joke to pass the time while I waited, I wrote a song about waiting for him in Blue Jay Way. There was a little Hammond organ in the corner of this house, which I hadn't noticed until then, so I messed around on it and the song came. The backing track was captured in a single take on September 6th, 1967, with Harrison on organ, McCartney on bass, and Starr on drums. The next day, Harrison overdubbed his double-track lead vocal, and he, Lennon, and McCartney added backing vocals. On October 6th, tambourine and cello were overdubbed, but the real power of the song came from its use of ADT, or artificial double-tracking, flanging, and backwards backing vocals. We'll follow with McCartney's Your Mother Should Know, which was started on August 22nd at Chapel Recording Studios, because EMI was unavailable that night. The group returned the next night for overdubs, and during that session, their manager Brian Epstein stopped by. It would be his last visit to a Beatles recording session before his death on August 27, 1967. We'll then hear the first studio recording made by the Beatles after his death, I Am the Walrus. The backing track featured Lennon on Honor Pionette, Harrison on guitar, Starr on drums, and McCartney on tambourine, but the magic of George Martin's arrangement for violins, cellos, horns, and clarinet took the song to the next level. McCartney stated that Lennon gave instructions to Martin as to how he wished the orchestration to be scored, singing most of the parts as a guide. They also brought in a 16-voice choir of professional studio vocalists named the Mike Sam Singers, who provided the ho-ho-ho-hee-hee-hee-ha-ha-ha, oompa-oompa-stick-it-in-ya-jumpa, and the "Everybody's got one lines, as well as adding a series of shrill whooping noises. Moody Blues member Ray Thomas claimed that he and fellow band member Mike Pinder also took part in this session contributing backing vocals along with the Mike Sam Singers.
2: to show Yeah.
1: I'm crying. Sitting on a cornflake. Waiting for the van to come. Corporation t shirts, stupid bloody Tuesday man. You've been a naughty boy. You let your face grow long. I am the Eggman. They are the Eggman. Sitting pretty, little policeman in a row. See how they fly like Lucy in the sky. See how they run. I'm crying. Monographic priestess Boy, you've been a naughty girl You let your knickers down I am the Eggman They are the Eggmen. I am the Warriors
2: Cuckoo, cajoub Eggman, <laughs>
1: For the sun. If the sun don't come, you get to tan from standing in the English rain. I am the Eggman. They are the Eggman. Expert choking smokers, don't you think the Joker laughs at you? <laughs> <laughs> see how they smile like pigs in a sty, see how this night I'm crying. Semolina Bilchard climbing up the Eiffel Tower. Elementary penguins singing Hare Krishna. Man, you should have seen them kicking Edgar Allan Poe. I am the Eggman. They are the Eggmen.
2: I am the one.
0: We're back with side two of Magical Mystery Tour. Towards the end of filming, the Beatles began recording Hello Goodbye in October of 67. Under the working title Hello Hello, the basic track was recorded on October 2nd with McCartney on piano, Lennon on Hammond organ, Harrison on maracas, and Starr on drums. The coda was written in the studio and the group overdubbed tambourine, congas, and bongos over that section. While Lennon wasn't a big fan of the song, he did approve of the addition, stating, The best bit was the end, which we all ad libbed in the studio, where I played the piano, like one of my favorite bits on Ticket to Ride, where we just threw something in at the end. The Beatles returned to the song on October 19th, two days after attending a memorial service for Epstein at the New London Synagogue on Abbey Road, to add Harrison's Leslie lead guitar parts, McCartney's lead vocal, and backing vocals by Lennon, McCartney, and Harrison. Originally, Harrison's part was busier answering McCartney's vocals over the opening verse with a number of descending fills, as he had done four years earlier on Please Please Me. McCartney felt that it was too much, and the removal of these guitar parts may have caused some tension between the two, foreshadowing the pair's disagreements regarding Harrison's playing on McCartney compositions such as Hey Jude and Two of Us. We'll follow with the Beatles' February 1967 single, Strawberry Fields Forever and Penny Lane." Episode number 10 of the Beatles multi-track Meltdown was an entire show dedicated to Strawberry Fields Forever, so for more information on the history and recording of that song, that's the perfect place to start. Penny Lane was started at the end of 1966, as was Strawberry Fields Forever, but took quite a while to perfect, spanning over nine separate sessions. The basic rhythm track, which consisted of McCartney's main piano part, however, was recorded in just six takes. As engineer Jeff Emmerich recalled, Unlike any other Beatles track recorded to that point, it started with Paul playing piano, not with the four of them playing a rhythm track together. Every single part except the main piano piece was an overdub. For days, the others sat at the back of the studio watching Paul layer keyboard after keyboard, working completely on his own. As always, his sense of timing was absolutely superb. The main piano part that everything was built on was rock solid, despite the fact that there were no electronic metronomes to lay down click tracks in those days. In fact, Ringo wasn't even employed to tap out a beat on the hi-hat. It was that bedrock of Paul's original piano track that gave the whole song such a great feel. Although this formed a basis for the then-entitled tune, numerous overdubs would take place over many sessions, including six pianos, two of which were played by John and one by George Martin. One of the pianos was even sent through a Vox amplifier with additional reverb and the tremolo setting on low to create another texture. The overdubs continued over additional sessions to capture McCartney's bass, Lennon and Harrison on guitars, star on drums, handbell, congas, flutes, trumpets, piccolo, flugelhorn, oboes, cor anglais, and bowed double bass. But McCartney still wasn't satisfied, and after watching the second of a five-part late-night BBC2 television series Masterworks on January 11th, he came into the studio inquiring about the small high-pitched trumpet he had heard on Bach's Brandenburg Concerto. Martin explained that it was a piccolo trumpet, and the musician playing it, David Mason, was brought into the studio four days later to record the signature part. Martin spoke of the session in his book All You Need Is Ears. Now, the normal trumpet is in B flat, but there is also a D trumpet, which is what Bach mostly used, and the F trumpet. In this case, I decided to use a B flat piccolo trumpet, an octave above the normal. It was a difficult session for two reasons. First, that little trumpet is a devil to play in tune, because it isn't really in tune with itself so that in order to achieve pure notes, the player has to lip each one. Secondly, we had no music prepared. We just knew that we wanted a little piping interjections. We had had experience of professional musicians saying, if the Beatles were real musicians, they'd know what they wanted us to play before we came into the studio. Happily, David Mason wasn't like that at all. By then, the Beatles were very big news anyway, and I think he was intrigued to be playing on one of their records, quite apart from being well-paid for his trouble. As we came to each little section where we wanted the sound, Paul would think up the notes he wanted, and I would write them down for David. The result was unique, something that had never been done in rock music before, and it gave Penny Lane a very distinct character.
2: You say yes, I say no. You say stop, but I say go, go. Say hello Hello, hello I don't know why you say goodbye I say hello Hello, hello I don't know why you say goodbye I say hello I say hi You say hello
1: You say
2: why And I say I don't know Say hello I say hello, hello, hello I don't know why you say goodbye I say hello You say yes, I say, yes, I say no me You say stop, I can but I say go go, 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 go I say hello. Hello, hello. I don't know why you say goodbye. I say hello. Hello, hello. I don't know why you say goodbye. I say hello. Oh, oh, oh.
3: Real and nothing to get hung about. Strawberry feels forever. No one I think is in my tree. I mean, it must be high or low. That is, you can't, you know, tune in, but it's alright. That is as I think it's not too bad let me take you down cuz I'm going to strawberry fields nothing is real and nothing to get hung about strawberry fields forever Nothing is real And nothing to get hung about Strawberry feels forever Strawberry feels forever Strawberry feels forever
2: behind the shelter in the middle of the roundabout A pretty nurse is selling poppies from a tray And though she feels as if she's in a play She is anyway In Penny Lane the barber shaves another customer We see the banker sitting waiting for a trim And then the fireman rushes in from the pouring rain, very strange Penny Lane is in my ears and in my eyes There beneath the blue suburban skies I sit and meanwhile back Penny Lane is in my ears and in my eyes The blue suburban skies Penny Lane.
0: Next up, the result of Lennon and McCartney combining two unfinished songs to create one in a similar fashion to A Day in the Life and I've Got a Feeling, Baby You're a Rich Man. Lennon elaborated in a 1980 interview. That is a combination of two separate pieces, Paul's and mine, put together and forced into a song. One half was all mine, how does it feel to be one of the beautiful people, now that you know who you are, and then Paul comes in with baby you're a rich man, because he just had this baby you're a rich man around. The group once again used a studio other than EMI to record the song, something that had become more common in 1967. Engineer Jeff Emmerich had a theory to why they began using other studios more frequently. Perhaps they simply had cabin fever and were sick of staring at the same four walls. There weren't really any amenities at Abbey Road. There were no couches or armchairs in our cramped control rooms, just a couple of uncomfortable hard chairs. In contrast, when they went into Olympic, there would be large control rooms with plush leather sofas and comfortable chairs to sit in, all accented by low lighting and a modern decor. In addition, by mid-1967, every other major studio in London had an 8-track machine, and we still had only 4-track, which really made us seem like we were lagging far behind. There was also a much more relaxed attitude toward drugs in other studios, and it wouldn't surprise me if the staff at those facilities would partake with clients, so perhaps the Beatles related to the other engineers better. I imagine they thought it was really cool to share a joint with the control room staff. In contrast, we must have seemed really straight and square. The record was made quickly at Olympic Studios on May 11, 1967, with the 12th take of the basic track featuring Lennon on piano, McCartney on bass, Harrison on electric guitar, and Starr on drums deemed the best. They then overdubbed a second piano part played by McCartney, tambourine and maracas by Starr, tambora by Harrison, and handclaps by Starr and Harrison. Lennon's lead vocal double-tracked in spots, and McCartney and Harrison's backing vocals were added before second engineer Eddie Kramer, who would later serve as producer for Jimi Hendrix and Kiss, and engineer albums by Led Zeppelin, David Bowie, and others, added vibraphone. Mick Jagger was present at the session, and it's been speculated that he contributed backing vocals to the track. The most striking sound on Baby or Rich Man is definitely the keyboard instrument the clavioline, played by Lennon. Kramer explained its use on the track. We wanted to make sure that they walked out of Olympic Studios being completely blown away, which they were. There was a clavioline that happened to be in the studio, and John played it. This was a French electronic instrument with a small keyboard. It had a little strip which you put your thumb on and moved it up and down the length of the keyboard as you played to get vibrato. The song was mixed in mono since it was initially released as a single, and Baby or Rich Man was complete when the Beatles left the studio at 3 a.m.
2: be one of the.
0: to close the show tonight with Lennon's Anthem for the Summer of Love. All you need is love. In early 1967, the BBC decided to produce a live television event that would link five continents via satellite for the first time. The program, entitled Our World, would feature live contributions from 18 different countries and be broadcast by 24 countries. The Beatles were asked to participate and would provide the finale for a segment, Artistic Excellence. They were to perform live in the studio but it wouldn't be a 1967 Beatles record had they just performed live in front of an audience. On June 14, 1967, 11 days before the television show, the Beatles returned to Olympic Studios to record a backing track for All You Need Is Love, but for this session, they played instruments that weren't normally associated with the group. Lennon played harpsichord, McCartney was on double bass, Harrison played violin, an instrument he had never previously played, and Starr was on drums. Although they recorded 33 takes, the 10th was chosen as the best. Five days later, they reconvened at EMI Studio 3, an overdubbed piano played by George Martin, banjo by Lennon, additional drums by Starr, lead vocals by Lennon, and background vocals by McCartney and Harrison. Although an orchestra was to play a pivotal role in the live performance, on June 23rd, the orchestra was brought in to record some of their parts in advance. Lennon decided to do his vocals live on the show, which prompted McCartney to state that he would play his bass live as well. Harrison also played his guitar solo live, and McCartney and Harrison added additional backing vocals during the broadcast on top of the pre-recorded ones. On June 25th, the Beatles and the orchestra arrived at EMI Studio One for the broadcast, and after a number of rehearsal takes, they were ready. Although there were a few technical difficulties, the broadcast went off without a hitch, and after playback, they decided that only two things needed to be re-recorded. Star's opening snare drum roll, and two vocal lines in the second verse that Lennon had flubbed. Less than two weeks later, it was released as the Beatles' 15th single. (laughs)
2: Love is all, the is all in me
0: Well, that's it for this week, Beatles fans. Hope you enjoyed this special magical mystery tour episode of the Beatles multi-track meltdown. I'm Anthony Robustelli, author of I Want to Tell You, The Definitive Guide to the Music of the Beatles, Volume 1, 1962-1963, and the Steely Dan FAQ, all that's left to know about this elusive band. Tune in to hear more deconstructed mixes of classic Beatles songs, solo cuts, live tracks, demos, and much, much more. You can pick up the books on Amazon or any of your favorite booksellers, and also check out my new CD, The Steely Dan Sessions, Interpretations of Unrealized Classics. You could stream past shows on iTunes, Podbean, or at the website, com, and follow me on Instagram and Twitter, ShadyBearBKLYN. You can also like the Facebook pages for I Want to Tell You and The Steely Dan FAQ. See you next time.